Hello, everybody. Oh, my God. It's me, Peaches Christ, and we're back for another episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. And, well, I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. I just needed you all to know that um, for no other reason than, well, you know, before we get to it, let's introduce my fantastic co-host, the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. I'm berserk, Peaches, and I like it fine. Yes, yes, we're here to <laughs> celebrate 1974's Female Trouble, written and directed by the one and only John Waters, starring Divine, Mink Stoll, David Lockery, Mary Vivian Pierce, and many, many, many. And Edith Massey, of Edith course. Edith Massey, Elizabeth Coffey, so many Dreamlanders who uh, are, are repeat performers, repeat offenders, if you will, in the world of John Waters. And uh, I love that you led with that line from Mink, because of course, Mink is, is a dear friend of the podcast and a force of nature is Taffy in this movie. But I think that you and I have both, since the inception of Midnight Mass, been excited to talk about female trouble. Yes, I mean, I feel like this is one of those um, movies where we've kind of been saving it, you know, because it's it's one we obviously knew we had to do. Anyone who knows anything about me knows that the discovery of uh, the Dreamlanders and John Waters, Mink Stoll, Divine, as a young kid growing up in Maryland, it was life-changing for me. And that's like, there, there's no sort of hyperbolic um, bullshit going on. Like it changed my freaking life. And yeah. um, Female Trouble is my favorite John Waters film. For me, it's sort of the holy grail of those movies. And so here we are, we're finally doing it. And it's season three and we are kicking off our John Waters celebration this season with my favorite John Waters film, Female Trouble. So I have to ask you, like, where does Female Trouble fall in your John Waters obsession? Is it your favorite, too? I think it might be. You know, when I think of John's movies, there are so many reasons to like all of them. You know, as an indie filmmaker, Cecil B. Demented speaks to me in ways that I cannot even fully express in words. I uh -huh. love Serial Mom. I love Hairspray just for, you know, the, the sheer energy of it all. But Female Trouble, I get what you mean when you called it the holy grail of John Waters movies, because of course, Pink Flamingos in many, many ways redefined the midnight movie. It's one of the tentpole midnight movies that then traveled the country, kind of helped create midnight movie culture. I feel like even though Pink Flamingos is still a definitively John Waters movie, what we tend to think of as the cultural John Waters tropes and, and affectations really start to come into play in Female Trouble in the, their more refined way, I guess. If, you know, if refined is the word that you can use. Uh, and I, I say that because of, of John's good taste commitment to bad taste. I don't know if he would like the word refined. I know exactly what you're saying. I, I totally get it. Like Pink Flamingos still holds up as truly one of the most shocking movies, you know, ever made. And it, it, it still delivers to this day. And I, I've told the story before, you know, I taught a cult movie course at the San Francisco Art Institute um, some years back. And, you know, I showed a lot of what would be considered, I guess, shocking movies. And, you know, because of the, the day and age we live in, I gave uh, the entire class a trigger warning at the beginning of the semester and said, you will be triggered by almost every movie I screen. <laughs> so just know that going into it. But the one that really shocked young people people the most 
uh, you know, and I showed a Clockwork Orange. I showed a, but you know, I showed zombie movies. I showed, you know, uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. The one that shocked the kids the most, kids, college students, was Pink Flamingos. And uh, it has that shock value. But what I think female trouble has is that sort of nuance of character. It's an epic story of a woman's life's journey, you know, from her teenage years to her adult years to her her tragic end. Or maybe it's not tragic, depending on the way you look at it, you know? Yeah, but I think therein the nuance lies the the greatness of it because it is shocking in its own way. We talk about the shock value of pink flamingos, people competing to be the filthiest person alive. But I think the shock of female trouble lies in the nuance that you mentioned because the reality is that while female trouble has all these big moments, the cha-cha heels, the meatball sub, you know, the the big like production at the end where Divine is, is shooting people in the audience. Who wants to die for the sake of art? But that's it. Who wants to die for the sake of art? This is John Waters critiquing our obsession with celebrity culture. And the fact that Divine as both monster and victim all at once in this movie, she's exploited by our societal obsession with fame. And like, what's it mean to be famous? And the people around her exploit her need for attention and exploit yeah. her need for fame. And the movie becomes this critique on that blurred line because we know at the time, John was very, very interested in the Manson family in that trial. He's written about it, he's spoken about it, and he kind of obsessed about it in the same way that he may be obsessed about Elizabeth Taylor. And so in Female Trouble, you see Divine as Elizabeth Taylor in some ways as a Manson family member. It's like this kind of like, and John Waters positing our sick obsessions with this kind of notoriety are some in some ways one and the same, whether you're deifying a criminal or deifying a celebrity. And that's what I think makes female trouble so shocking. It's not eating dog shit. It's the dog shit that we eat daily. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's uh, also acknowledge that in the canon of these incredible films, this is a movie that's infinitely quotable like yes. every line of dialogue to me feels inspired you know even the small throwaway moments in this movie are like just little gems and if you're a john waters obsessed cult member like so many of us are you can toss around an intonation or a little phrase and other cult members are going to know exactly what you're referencing and so much of it comes from female trouble and we also have these iconic moments such as divine getting fucked by herself you know yeah that was so genius and what a genius use of drag and and to acknowledge this performer's acting ability as you know divine plays earl peterson you've got like you know uh, iconic costumes in this film the fashion was taken to the next level i mean of course we get the red dress and pink flamingos but with female trouble it's a parade of looks and fashion and we've got you know mink stole playing taffy davenport you know and oh, edith so massey you know playing aunt ida like you know mary vivian pierce and david lockery playing the dashers it is perfection it just is perfection 
So can I ask you, Peaches, uh, because we often talk on the show about the Baltimore connection and the importance of John Waters to Baltimore. And all of his movies reflect Baltimore and, and, you know, his home. But would you say that Female Trouble is the most Baltimore of John's movies or? (laughs) You know what? I've never thought about it. I honestly think I would say that, especially of those old films, they're pretty equally Baltimore. You know, like, (laughs) you know, I really feel like Multiple Maniacs, Mondo Trasho. You know, if you grow up in Maryland, Female Trouble, Pink Flamingos, like they're all I think pretty equally Baltimore in the newer films. I mean, my God, Hairspray. Hairspray is so Baltimore. Serial Mom is suburban Baltimore. Very, very true of suburban Baltimore. You know, it's kind of like where, you know, I grew up. So I I don't know. That's a good question. But I, I would say that there's a real equity going on there. One thing about my strange life, being a John Waters obsessed fan who then you know, got to work with John and Mink and and different people and then become friends with them is that um, I, you know, get to go to his Christmas party in Baltimore and have been many times. And because I get to attend that party, I've been able to meet some of the unique and brilliant people that work both in front of the camera and behind the camera on his films. And it's always a total pleasure. And our first guest is one of those people who is one of the iconic stars of Pink Flamingos. Um, But she also is in Female Trouble and is in, you know, one of my favorite moments in the whole film, one of the most melodramatic moments in any John Waters film ever. And well, she's here with us. I think it's so special, Michael. It absolutely is. She was there. These are the gifts of Midnight Mass. So I really feel, without further ado, let's introduce Elizabeth Coffey. Welcome back, dear listeners, and we have a very special guest. It was a thrill for me to be introduced to one of the original Dreamlanders at, get this, none other than John Waters' home, where he was having his annual Christmas party. I was introduced to this Dreamlander by Mink Stull herself. And as soon as I realized who I was talking to, it was like my mind was blown. This person is so iconic and you John Waters fans are going to be as excited as I was to meet her right now. It's none other than Elizabeth Coffey Williams. Hi. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael and everyone out there in Cyberland. Good to meet you, good to see you. Hopefully I won't be too much of a disgrace and um, (laughs) I'm here to tell you whatever you wanna know. Well, I I think we should probably start um, at the beginning as far as your 
becoming a dreamlander. And even though this episode is primarily about female trouble, of course, we all know that the mother of all midnight movies is Pink Flamingos. And there are there are a number of people who appear in Pink Flamingos who have very brief but incredibly memorable moments. And you are one of those people, a true trailblazer. So you appear in Pink Flamingos. That was, I believe, your first John Waters film. But how did you meet John? And how did you end up in Pink Flamingos? I was going to Johns Hopkins because I found out that they did gender reassignment there. And I said, great, I can just go down and do that. And a friend of mine in Philadelphia was going to Baltimore I think it was a commercial endeavor, um, a nice way of saying he was probably going to purchase some contraband. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I asked him if I could get a ride and he said, sure. And I got in the car with a little bag and I had on jeans and a t-shirt. And while I was in the car, I took off the jeans and put on a blue jean mini skirt and a tank top, put my hair up in pigtails and put a big pair of sunglasses on and said, I'm good. I transitioned in a car on the way to Baltimore. (laughs) <laughs> but that was indeed so Baltimore. So yes. end up in Baltimore at this apartment with people. I don't have any clue who they are, but they're these two incredible women. And one of them immediately says to me, hi, sweetie, my name's Cookie. And it was Cookie Mahler. And she patted on the bed and she said, come on up here. Let me read your tarot cards. And that was how I met her. And they did whatever they had to do. And he went home and I stayed not looking for an apartment yet. So I stayed the night and Cookie said to me, you know, there are some folks who live down the street because this was on like around St. Paul Street. And she said, they meet every day to watch this great soap opera called Dark Shadows. You should come. I think they might like you. And I said, okay. And I went, why not? I didn't know anybody in Baltimore. And I went and it was Paul Swift's apartment. And I can't remember everyone that was there, but I know Cookie was there and I was there and Paul was there. So so I knew nothing, but I knew that I had found some people and they were amazing. Fast forward a little bit. I met a few more folks. I met Susan, Susan, Susan Lowe, my heart. Different from Ming, but just as incredible. And I just went up. And at that point, um, I began to get to know some of them. And then someone, I don't remember who, because you realize this was a very long time ago, said, you know, there's going to be a movie premiere. And I said, oh, good. And it's in a church. And I thought, that's unusual. I think it was multiple maniacs. I'm relatively sure it was it was multiple maniacs. Yeah, that it seems like it would have to be. Yeah. So I went and I walked into this room and I don't have to tell you, I thought I was like Miss Cool Ass of the Universe. And I walked into that room and I felt like Miss Teenage America. There was Mink and John and Pat, my forever idol, Pat Moran, Divine, everyone. And I thought, great, like we're seeing this really strange, really great. It turned out to be this great, great movie. Because even though I kind of have a stupid I Love Lucy persona, I love art film too. And I saw the film and we talked. I wasn't anything special. No one fawned over me, but I got to meet a few more people. I ended up down in Fells Point. I started hanging out at Pete's Hotel where Edith was still bartending. I met Edith and a few of the other folks would come in now and again. So 
honestly, rather organically, we just became friends. I I love that you met most of them at the movies because then this trajectory of you ending up in the movies feels even more like it was predestined. But I, I, I'm curious because you, you talk about this group that's this chosen family, this dynamic group of people that you wandered into. And in liking art films and being in art films are two totally different things. So when you're presented the idea of being in Pink Flamingos, which of course is very outside the box because we don't really have John Waters in the public consciousness yet because John Waters is about to make this with you there. So what was your reaction getting this script and being like, ah. Uh... Thank you, Michael. That That's a great question. I didn't get a script. I was living on... Well, they called it Pleasant Street because they didn't have a Chinatown in Baltimore. They had a China block, one block called Park Avenue. And there was this alley called Pleasant Street. I have no idea why it was called Pleasant. There was one house in the alley and I lived in it with four other people because there were four bedrooms and it was $60 a month. Such a deal. Yes. And one day... John came in. I mean, we knew each other by then, but again, peripherally, all of these people had known each other all their lives. And my great secret is that I am actually like cripplingly shy. It's mm -hmm. just true. This is like the facade, but I'm really like blue jeans and a ponytail and very shy and kind of bookish. But John knocked on the door and I opened, I said, hi, what's up? And he said, hi. I have an idea. Do you want to be in a movie? And I said, me? He said, yeah, I have this idea. And he explained the scene to me. And I don't think we have to belabor that because I'm sure you know the scene. Right. Yes. He really explained the scene. He said, you're going to do this thing that seems really shocking. And yeah, it will be. And it, well, that didn't bother me. <laughs> but he said, what it's really about is that you get to win. And that appealed to me. Because this was at a time where I was going to Johns Hopkins, where I had just gotten back from Woodstock. And I realized that everyone at Johns Hopkins would only talk to you if you had a double processed blonde flip. No offense, Lady Bunny. <laughs> like your greatest aspiration was to be a housewife and a dental hygienist. And I was in flip flops and a little mini skirt. And I said, hey, what's the problem? They said, well, your lifestyle doesn't seem to be very appropriate. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I already have a boyfriend. I'm already modeling and I'm going to be in a movie. <laughs> None of that impressed them. But it was it was a long, arduous process. Actually, what most people don't know is before they shut the program down, they saw over 3000 people and actually only admitted about 30 to the program. So I sort of hit the gender reassignment lottery, but it was really weird. Everyone thinks that the Dreamlanders are weird. And trust me, Hopkins was much weirder than them. They were my safe place. They really had each other's backs. They were fun. They were kind. They were badass. They were so badass, but they were so smart and they so got it. So I said, sign me up. Let's do it. That is so beautiful. And it's so something that we talk about on this show 
all the time. And especially our audience being that they're a cult movie loving audience. One of the reasons so many of us are attracted to cult movies is because it's where we find our tribe. It's where we find like-minded, strange people who enjoy things that are more transgressive or we are ourselves identified as weirdos or the other. And I think that that sense of family you're describing, the fact that the Dreamlanders in Baltimore at the time we're talking about the early 70s, late 60s, being a trans woman at Johns Hopkins and feeling like the place where they're doing all this research and they have all this money and they're they're fa fa fa. But you found real acceptance. You could be yourself with the Dreamlanders. They didn't think about any of that. Yeah. I was just one of the girls in the neighborhood and they were kind. I mean, you know, there's this whole persona of the Dreamlanders because they were so many different characters in so many different films that people forget that they were real people Mm -hmm. and they were really smart people who really got it. I mean, of course, the person that sticks out in my mind is Mink. Mm. I can take her even out of the Dreamlander genre. She is one of the most intuitively talented actors that I've ever met. And I'll never forget the day that she told me that I was good. I'm not sure that I believed it, but just hearing that from her was so changing. It was something I I genuinely didn't expect. Many people don't even see the subtext in Pink Flamingos. They just show me in the film, opening my dress and showing my girly penis and thinking it's just terribly, terribly shocking. But the subtext is that, you know, Raymond Marble is really a flasher and an abuser to these women who are like running away. And even that's funny. But then when he tries it with me, I'm like, no way, buddy. I know what Mink is talking about. And you are a great actor and it is proven in female trouble. Oh my God. But that moment in Pink Flamingos, as a young queer person who, you know, had lots of gender stuff going on, you know, had not yet discovered drag, didn't know what I was, definitely knew I wasn't comfortable being called a boy, you know, or a dude or any of those things. Seeing you in that movie, it wasn't so much that it was shocking for me. It was that you had glee and pride. It was unapologetic. It was, the shock was, we can stand up to those misogynistic, horrible people, you know? And and so your, your moment for the wrong person watching that movie is shocking in all the ways right. we want it to be. But for yeah. the right person watching that movie, it was inspirational. I have to be as blatantly upfront about it as I can. I guess I did it. And I guess I was really lucky to find that terrific see-through dress at the carry-on shop on Howard Street for a nickel. But all of the credit goes to John. You know, everyone seems for some reason to think that a lot of what happens in those films is like loosey-goosey and ad-libby. And that is anything but the truth. Anyone who knows him knows that that is anything but the truth. What I did was directed with great specificity but it was up to me to do it. Right. Well, since it seems to have had some legs, hopefully, I guess I did what he told me to do because people seem to like it. And I'm to this day, even though people still vilify me for doing it, to this day, I stand defiantly proud of the fact that I did it because people who think that it is 
a seriously inappropriate moment, don't understand what the scene is about. I'm glad that you spoke to the subtext earlier when you brought this up. You talked about how the subtext for you was so important and is what makes the scene so impactful now still. And I really appreciate that you walked us through the process where John came to you, explained exactly what he was going for, exactly the nuance. And I think this is a good way for us to move from Pink Flamingos into female trouble, but also look at the overall, because when you speak about your experience with the Dreamlanders, you're speaking about people you know. You're speaking about people that you have had the nuance and the life experience with. So when you see how people approach these films, knowing that they're transgressive, but also so much more, and that within that transgression is also often commentary, is often subtext. Is it interesting to you to kind of look from the outside in when people approach you and talk to you about this? Because it seems like the tricky thing, and we've we've talked about this with Mink as well, um, throughout the years, people will come up and say outrageous things to Mink, thinking that she's these characters or thinking that she represents these things that John's characters represent. And Mink, of course, loves her history there, but she also is like, well, these mean something deeper than just X, Y, Z. So I'm just interested in your take on that. I couldn't agree with Mink more because she so gets it. Not so very long ago, Mink got to come up to Philly for a screening of Female Trouble when it was re-released by Criterion. And it's so pretty. And she and I sat in the balcony together because we hadn't seen it together in all those years. And we literally sat in the front row of the balcony holding hands and like squeezing each other's hands saying, look at that, look at that. And, you know, because we knew these people, but we also knew these people brilliantly playing these characters that John had breathed life into. And at the risk of being redundant, I think you know, maybe I am a bit insistent about the fact that it's John that breathes life into every one of those characters, every nuance of the character. I mean, if I can just flip back to Pink Flamingos for just a second. Yes, he told me without question to be defiant. And I was indeed, I think I was pretty defiant. But at the same time, it was important that the scene be funny. Because one of the great ways to make people pay attention is to make them laugh. I mean, there is not one word, not one nuance that doesn't go into the character through John. Sometimes in my mind, I sit there and actually think about the fact that John is all of those characters. <laughs> if he's not all of those characters, He's literally breathing the very nuanced life into those characters. And if you watch those films, especially Female Trouble, which to me is like the Ten Commandments of Dreamlander movies, all of those performances are so nuanced. You know, I don't watch the big stuff anymore. I watch for those beautiful little moments that make me just to this day fall right off my chair because they're so brilliant and so funny. And it was John's brilliance combined with the bravery and the intuitiveness of the people who did everything they could to interpret what it was that John was doing. And I guess if anything, that's how I really consider myself with John, is an interpreter. I interpreted what he envisioned, and hopefully I did it well. Well, you did, and we're here to tell you as fans that you absolutely did. And, you know, just to your point about all of those characters and the nuances, the three people that you met watching Dark Shadows, I was just thinking about this, you know, Paul Swift, Susan Lowe, 
Cookie Mueller. If you look at Female Trouble, Paul has a very small part in the movie. He plays a character named Butterfly. And if you're a fan of John Waters, and of course he was very iconic in Pink Flamingos because he played the Eggman. And the Eggman was, you know, a very iconic part of the movie. But in Pink Flamingos, in some ways, I think a character like Butterfly has all of that nuance and the comedy and the sass and the stereotype and the deliciousness of being queer and Sue and Cookie playing Chiclet and Concetta. Oh my God. I mean, to this day, people have tattoos of them, t-shirts of them, you know, enamel pens, you know, hugely inspiring characters who who really are on screen very little in that movie. You know, they're, they're not on screen very much at all, but they make the most of their time. And then that leads us to you, where you are. I mean, you are in the, in the most melodramatic, wild finale moment. You basically show up at the very end of the film as Ernestine, Don Davenport's lover in prison. And you are very upset because Don Davenport is going to be sent to the electric chair and you do it beautifully you are both hilarious telling her how fucked up she is but also we're, our heart is breaking for you so you know I, I think you hit the nail on its head but what was it like shooting that thing it was a bit intimidating for me first we had a rehearsal i don't know if people know that we rehearsed but boy did we rehearse and john had those big yellow legal pads lord and not only would he tell us our lines, not only did we have to know our lines, but then he would tell us how to say them. I mean, everything had such a great specificity, but it worked. So again, I, I felt like a moderately talented wind-up toy that was capable of interpreting what he was telling me to do. But if there was a moment there, that moment was that for what was a brief moment, I suppose, I got to work with Divine one-on-one. -on -one. And in that moment, other than having the challenge of getting both of us on a single bed, Divine was so extraordinarily generous to me. Anyone who knew Divine knows that Divine could effortlessly chew scenery. He could chew the entire scene. And he worked that scene with me. And I felt that. But we really did that in a jail. Wow. Yeah, that was a real wow. jail. I think Baltimore County Jail. And they were like closing the doors behind us. And I was like, shit, are they going to let us out? Here I am in this like fucking blue jumper. It was so pretty. Kind of like a crew cut, which I, I cut all my hair off for that movie. But that's nothing compared to what other people did for John. Cutting all my hair off to me was nothing. And there we were in jail with Pat and Marina and Chris Mason and mom. Chris Mason and mom played the, the two matrons and Divine. So I was a little bit intimidated because, again, I was there with the heavy hitters and I had great affection for these people. But at the same time, I was a little bit afraid of them because they were so good. Even to this day, it's really even though my persona is 10 feet high and bulletproof, when they didn't give me dog day afternoon. I never got over that. Nor did I get over that they put it in that Netflix thing, Disclosure. And I found out about it once it was on Netflix. Really? And Sam Fetter, who made the film, messaged me and said, are you pleased? And I said, yeah, but I would have been a little more fucking pleased if you let me talk for myself. That is actually really disappointing that they made that movie and did not include you and did not invite you. I mean, 
between Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, the fact that you as a trans woman then played a woman in the movie Female Trouble, played Divine's lover. One of the most transgressive people on screen as far as trans issues go is Divine. And you're there as a trans woman playing a woman. It's like, why weren't you in disclosure? Well, because they framed it all around the fact that I flew back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to 30 Rock auditioning for Dog Day Afternoon because Sidney Lumet loved me mm-hmm. and really wanted me. I even have pictures where I threw on a black wig and said, no, look, I can look like Liz Eden and I can do Liz Eden because I'm from Brooklyn. Right. I mean, I had my script with my own name on it. I was going back and forth. I knew it was mine. And then there was a final meeting with the producers. I didn't get to say much, but then I got the phone call that I didn't get it. The bottom line was that I was too female to play a trans person. And I thought, what the fresh hell? Like, baby, Jesus in a kilt. If I can't play a trans woman, what can I do? That's how fucked up Hollywood is. A lot of people don't know, like, that they're so fucked up that, like, you didn't fit into their weird agenda of whatever they wanted to, you know, put out there. Yeah. Chris Sarandon, who is a brilliant actor, did a brilliant job with what they gave him. But the portrayal was still desperately incorrect. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Elizabeth Eden. Yes. Look like some dude with a five o'clock shadow. Right. It was just not right. But yeah, they all felt really bad. And it was all sad. I mean, they're nice people, I guess. I don't know them. Jen Richards is really nice to me. But the rest of them, I guess they're really good. I guess they're also climbing all over each other for parts. Because we only are only so many parts, but nobody's calling me for any, and I'm still here, and I still look just fine. You look great, gorgeous. Yes. You know how interesting though that this conversation about female trouble leads into the dog day afternoon discussion because what we're looking at are two sides of a coin. Because here's Hollywood trying to tell people what the queer experience is and what it looks like through their narrow lens, through what Hollywood wants to present. And now on the other side, you're working in Baltimore with these people who are authentically queer, making authentically queer cinema and not putting up those barriers at all. And it's just sort of the experience that you got on Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. And then, well, I mean, it's what Female Trouble is about, the distortion of celebrity, the idea of the things that we put out into the world. I mean, there's so much to unpack there that's that's Oh, indeed. There there is so much to unpack. I think it takes so long because she is like a Jane Mansfield Godzilla. It takes people if they ever do realize the fact that and I think maybe Ernestine was one of the few people who got it that Dawn was the victim. Yeah. I mean, she may have been a naughty teenager. I'll give her that. <laughs> but when it went past that, I always saw Dawn as the victim. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that because when you were talking about everyone being a heavy hitter and how you felt intimidated by that, the truth is you own that scene because there's so much emotion there. And up until this point, all of these people in the film were playing sort of these outrageous characters. And here's Ernestine providing that pathos for Dawn in the final moment of the film to reveal that's still a person. This is a person who has been distorted. And through Ernestine, we get to see that. 
And I think that that's really special. And you carry that so amazingly. Well, I think the difference between Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble was that even though I'm a strange prison girl with a crew cut, I played that straight. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is a brief pussy flash, and most people don't get that, but that was also deliberate. That was very important because we showed one in Pink Flamingos and the other, the new improved model. <laughs> <laughs> the new improved model in Female Trouble. But yeah, I mean, I, I think anyone who sees it, it, it's obvious. I played Ernestine straight. Right, for sure. And that was when Ming said to me, you were so good. You were so real. And I still can't digest that coming from Mink. Theatrically, she's one of my heroes. But yeah, after the Dog Day Afternoon debacle, I'm sure you know, I quit. Yeah. But I instinctively knew that then, yeah, 1974, it's hard to say that. How can I be 39? And that was 1970. <laughs> the magic. But magic. I don't know if I was right or wrong. I knew that Dog Day Afternoon would be life-changing if I got it. But when I didn't get it, even though I was a kid, I said to myself, you know, if I can't play a trans woman and I can't play a guy and they're not going to let me play a cis woman, so there isn't going to be any work for me. And I walked away. Will I ever know if that was a great mistake? Well, the reality of it is to do what you did and to do it the way that you did it, which is in your first film, you know, you're you're obviously a trans woman. You're presenting that very blatantly, unapologetically. And then in Female Trouble to come back and have this role where you're playing a lesbian woman who's in love with another woman. And that woman's being played by kind of a man, you know, like in the John Waters universe, it really was so progressive and so ahead of its time in so many, 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 many ways. And you look at what Hollywood was doing. I was trying to think of other examples of people around that time. And I, I was thinking about Robert Altman's um, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, where Karen Black played a trans woman. And then I started going down the road of like, we're getting all the way up to almost today where most of the trans women we have seen in the history of cinema were not played by trans women. In many ways, you were one of the very, very few trailblazers who got to be on screen, you know, both as a trans woman and as a cis woman or, you know, whatever Ernestine is, you know. That could be. But, you know, the bottom line with, with Pink Flamingos, obviously, is until the great reveal. Yeah. Everybody thinks that I'm just another pretty girl sitting on a fence. Yes. That said, I hear you. Yeah. Trans women got to be crazy people or they got to be dead bodies or they got to be murderers. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, I won't say the Karen Black got it completely wrong. But I could have done that. Absolutely. I think that's the thing is like we look back on it. But the problem is, even though you could have done it, not only could you have done it, you could have done it beautifully. You were part of the group of people, including folks like Hollywood Lawn and the Andy Warhol group as well, who were chiseling away at these things and saying, guess what? Hollywood doesn't want us, so we'll make our movies ourselves. And you think about someone like Karen Black or Robert Altman and the people who are in, in that movie, 
yeah, it should have been you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, we look at it now and we go, oh, it's so obvious. And today, if the same movie was made the same way, we live in a different time where that actor would really be taken to task and the director, you know, and you're part of the reason things exist the way they do today. And, you know, Peaches, you're right. And at the same time, I'm not as militant as some people. I don't think that every portrayal of a trans woman has to be played by a trans woman because that creates a dangerous trap. Agreed. Putting us into a little pigeonhole. Because why couldn't I play the girl behind the deli counter? Or why couldn't I play somebody's mom or pretty aunt? It doesn't always have to hinge on that. We're seeing that today. But at the same time, even though I may be here and vibrant and whatever... And yeah, I'm doing like a a speaking tour of the UK in March. Wow. Oh, that's great. I think we all know that something else that is still alive and well in Hollywood is ageism. All of these lovely young trans actresses, it's almost like they feel so sorry for me. I was a brave trailblazer and it's so sad what they did to me. But nobody says, so give her a fucking job. Is that brain surgery? Don't feel sorry for me because there's nothing to feel sorry about. Because all the way back then, I did some better work than some of them are doing now. And with that sentiment in mind, one thing that we like to talk to all of our guests who have been involved in cult films about, and and we've spoken about it a little bit all throughout this, but you, you talk about when John first approached you for Pink Flamingos, we talk about the day that you're shooting Female Trouble and you know the impact that character has. And then you also spoke to Fast Forward, you getting to watch the movie with Mink in the theater just recently. As the years have gone on and, and you've had these these kind of highs and lows in the industry and in your life, how has your relationship with these films changed, if at all? I think that they haven't. I'm really proud of the fact that I got to be part of something that special. I'm genuinely sad that I didn't have the opportunity to continue working and was part of that my choice, I guess so. But I happen to be fiercely pragmatic. And in that moment, I I think, and I still think I was right, that there was no place for me. I went back to John two more times and did a little piece in Desperate Living and a little tiny piece in Hairspray. But other than that, well, I did one or two things on stage. But other than that, I did nothing. I wasn't built to claw and scrape and do that. They were cruel. Sidney Lumet begged. He also told them they were being stupid, but they stuck to their guns. No, I couldn't be more proud of what I did. And that's because I think as we see the films, just like Shakespeare, Shakespeare isn't good because it's old. It endures because it's good. Yes. Work endures because it is brilliant and it is still relevant yeah i remember watching one little documentary and i I don't remember which one it was because you know there have been a lot of them and it was the two guys from new line cinema when they were really young and they said they were like looking at pink flamingos because john had sent it to them and they got to my part and then one said to the other could you rewind that (laughs) (laughs) and they looked at it again and i certainly didn't have a prime impetus in them picking it up but even they were impacted by it like holy shit really and she's laughing about it why isn't she crying and feeling gender dysphoric (laughs) because i never did 
I was in Baltimore having fun. I had boyfriends. I didn't have time to go to Hopkins and tell them how tragic I was because I wasn't. But did I know how iconic Pink Flamingos was going to be? No. Did I know that it was going to follow me back to Philadelphia and that I was going to end up in like magazines and newspapers to the great chagrin of my teamster father? <laughs> wow. At that point, because I was working at this really cool place that John and Divine were there. Of course, they would throw them parties called Lickety Split. My father, would just, who really loved me, would just say to me, everything else is okay, but can't you wear real clothes? Like, that scarf is not clothes. But no, do I live with great pride about it? How could we not? Even though it's very different, it's like asking one of those actors who spent their whole lives being really tragic and saying, if they were happy to work with Ingmar Bergman. Right. But it was black and white and for me boring but they got to work with ingmar bergman when you get to work with a legend you have to remember at least i do to not get so full of myself to think that it would have happened without him i didn't make the flasher girl he did i didn't make ernestine he did he blew her up all i did was be the trick pony luckily i guess i was good at it not only were you good at it, you were great. And I love that analogy saying Shakespeare isn't important today because it's old. It's important today because it was good and it continues to be good. And this is the spirit of our entire podcast. We, yeah. by looking at cult movies, the virtue of their being cult is that they've been around, around long enough to stand the test of time. So cult movies, in some ways have a quality to them because they last. And that quality is they're good. They said something. They continue to say something. Sure. So I love that you you brought that up and you said it so, so much better than I just did. But, you know. <laughs> is it possible that you're even more humble than me? But <laughs> And you are so insanely talented. Oh, thank you. Elizabeth? We cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Yes. You are a legend and you've, you, you've just been so wonderful as a guest. Please come back anytime. Thank you so much. Michael, thank you as well. It was a delight to meet you. Peaches, Joshua, you brilliant, brilliant creator. Oh. I don't know if you remember, but you didn't know me from a can of paint. And the first thing you did when Mink brought me to you was hug me. <laughs> Yes. Thank you for thinking of me because, you know, I guess I'm not your stereotypical old lady. I'm just a divorcee living my life. Thank you for coming on the show and we will be in touch for sure. Okay, that was our interview with the fabulous Elizabeth Coffey. Oh my God, what a treat. She is just a gem, and I'm so glad we got to have her on the podcast. Her stories are just so rich and important for people to hear. You know, the, the tale she told us about Dog Day Afternoon, of course, is fascinating for film fans. But I also, if you're a John Waters fan, love what she had to say about him masterminding the process. She was very reverential to his work. She's very humble about her work in the films. That's part of the genius of a good director is picking people who can deliver. So though John may have been the mastermind, of course he knew that Elizabeth was 
able to do what she did. She truly has marked her place in cinema history. And I just love that she took the time to talk to us today and and be so open, you know, because she didn't certainly have to. At the end of the day, I think one of the reasons it was so important, I think, for you and I to have her on the show And she's less likely to pat herself on the back for this. But I think you and I want to and need to. But this person is a trans pioneer. You know, this person lived unapologetically as her true self at a time when it was so misunderstood and so vilified and so horrifying to the public. And so the fact that she has just lived fearlessly you know, she really has paved the way. And her presentation in those movies is extremely important. And so what a thrill to have her on. And she's just so lovely. She continues, obviously, as we discussed, to be a wonderful advocate and activist. And I love that, you know, John had her, you know, at the uh, the dedication for his gender neutral bathrooms in the uh, in the Baltimore Museum of Art. Like, who wouldn't want to be part of the Dreamlander family? They are a family. They are, in a way, their own cult. And what you brought up about her really acknowledging that John is the wizard of all of this is very common. You know, you hear Mink talk about, they all talk about it. They all know that they had a great leader with great vision who knew exactly what he was doing and knew exactly how to cast people. And he used all of them as muses and was able to weave these genius epic films with an extraordinary ability to understand collaboration. But really... It came from him. You're right. It is also the ability to understand collaboration and understand and see that talent. I love the analogy of John Waters as wizard because we know that he loves the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And in in his way, he is the Wizard of Oz. And, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, the Wizard of Oz, you know, the wizard imparts to all of them. Well, you had the power all along. And it's just like so he as this kind of great ringmaster. He found the people he saw in them their abilities and he just brought it out by masterminding these amazing films to showcase it. And I think that's the coolest collaboration, especially for chosen family and for queer people to see, to see people coming together and creating something truly unique because they saw each other. Elizabeth has one of those lines, like all the lines in in Female Trouble, but she just, it's that delivery of her going, oh, you're so fucked up, Dawn. You know, it's like <laughs> so great, you know, and then they're having their lesbian love affair in, in prison at the end of the movie. And um, yeah, go back and watch Elizabeth in both those films. She's what a pioneer. Phenomenal. What a privilege. Well, Michael, as you know, the model for our Midnight Mass episodes varies, of course, but typically, if we can, we love to have maybe someone from the inside world of the film that we're celebrating. But also it's important to us to always celebrate the cult itself. You and I, we're the obsessed fans, but we want to talk to other obsessed fans. And when we did Desperate Living, of course, we had our interview with Mink Stoll, who's the star of that movie. And then we talked to Seth Shubin, who is a John Waters obsessed fan. And now we get to talk with another obsessed fan, someone that I I met through social media and understood their obsession right away. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because female trouble is in a lot of ways about the art of crime and the art of celebrity. And when you think about 
fan culture, we see a lot of art out there, but I cannot think of anyone who does more Dreamlander and John Waters and divine focused art in the world and has celebrated the films of John Waters through their art more than our next guest. You out there in the fan world probably know this person's work already because they are out there leading the charge with amazing work day after day. As Peaches said, I first encountered uh, this individual on social media as well and fell in love with their artwork. And I'm just so excited to celebrate Female Trouble with them right now. It's Mr. B Nation. Welcome back, listeners. When it comes to celebrating female trouble in the work of John Waters via the world of art, I can't think of anyone who does so with as much flair as our next guest. With a mission statement of making queer shit for queer people, this sensational creator has crafted stunning pieces of art, pins, and apparel that not only pay homage to the Dreamlanders, but a bevy of cult figures in films like Phantom of the Paradise, Silence of the Lambs, Little Shop of Horrors, and more. Known across the internet and fandom circles as the iconic Mr. B Nation, Please welcome artist extraordinaire, David. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yes, thank you for being here. So first and foremost, I want to say it is a thrill for Michael and I to have you on the show because I guess you started reaching out to me through my Peaches accounts some years back. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, this guy, the artwork is so great. Like, he really gets, you know, the John Waters fanaticism. You know, it was like a few things that you had sent me. And that was thousands of art pieces ago. You have generated so much artwork around your cult fandom. But specifically, the John Waters fandom is extraordinary. So for our listeners, if you're not familiar with Mr. B Nation and you're a John Waters fan, get familiar where did it all start? When, when did you get bit by the bug? Uh, it would have been hairspray for me because of my age. Hairspray on VHS. So um, I think Ricky Lake would be my first dreamland love. And um, through hairspray, um, Divine. And in the UK, where I'm from, Divine was more known to me as like high energy, disco, pop star rather than actor. So when I started to join those dots, I started to find more and more. And then by the time I was a teenager, I found pink flamingos and that led on into female trouble. And then once you get to that point, you're already in too deep. And so you, you just drown in it. You just find as much as you can and absorb as much as you can. And so me, it would have been since I was just a little boy with hairspray and learning to do the medicine. I love that you mentioned that your awareness of Divine in the UK was as a disco star. Is that more of the general populace's awareness of divine in in the uk as opposed to here do you find the point of reference is different absolutely um i could always find divine records and thrift store record stores you could never find john waters things absolute hen's teeth impossible but divine records always could find it and it was always because of like the top of the pops appearance the tabloid scandal of this is on our TV. Um, I was I grew up very aware of that, and that was that attracted me. That was that was blood in the water for me. That was definitely something that drew me in. 
I know that I've experienced that as someone who gets to go to the UK and perform and actually worked with Andrew Logan, who who created the alternative Miss World pageant, which was the big alternative drag ball for many, many years that Divine used to co-host when she had, you know, her disco heyday. And so mm-hmm. she, was a, she was a pop star, a disco star over in the UK. And one thing I've always said is uh, like, a friend of mine, Anna Matronic from um, the Scissor Sisters, you know, they became so massive, so massive in the UK in this way that they could not in the States. Now, that has changed to some degree because of queer culture be becoming more and more um, popular. But for a long, long time, you could be a very queer transgressive act and have a career in the UK being an, an American export that you could not have in, in North America because we're just that homophobic. So I love that Divine was on TV on Top of the Pops. Like, you know, that that just was much harder for her to achieve here. So that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And it's absolutely one of the things that I used to love finding. So finding performances in the UK and finding the DVD of uh, Live in Hacienda and and seeing this whole other career where I started with the disco, went through John Waters and then started to rediscover even more of the disco and the, the different life that Divine had outside of the movies. So that was something so good to find and rediscover and realize it was actually deeper than I, I thought. It was bigger than I knew. Well, and speaking of Divine's life outside of the movies, and heading into the movies. You mentioned that Hairspray was your gateway. But as we know, when you look at the trajectory of John's films, Hairspray is definitely a different beast from the movies that came before. So when you start going backwards and you discover the earlier work, specifically Female Trouble, what was your reaction, uh, you know, coming from the, the much safer, if you will, Ricky Lake of it all. It was just exciting. It's I had saw a few of the like the later movies at the time, and those seemed to be following the very not regular character, but the much more accessible character. You would follow them, and that would be like Tracy and Hairspray and Crybaby, the more accessible, and then discovering female trouble where the more interesting who would be the otherwise side character was the main character. And then not only did we get the most interesting character, we get her entire life. We get the saga from her origin story right the way through to her demise. So it was the most satisfying full story that you could get. And working backwards that way was just um, amazing to discover. The more you went back, the richer and crazier themes get. It was exciting to work backwards and find female trouble. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think that you are one of many, myself included, and and I'm much older than you. uh, I also discovered John Waters growing up in Maryland because of the success of Hairspray. So when Hairspray came out, you know, I was like 13 or 14 and it was a big deal in Maryland, as I've discussed before. And it was the gateway drug for so many of us. And then, of course, you know, we find out later that changed for folks who, you know, first saw Serial Mom or something something afterwards. But I love that Hairspray, which, which in many ways is maybe one of the most woke of his films and the most, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, family friendly in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, while also being completely transgressive and incredible. Don't get me wrong. I freaking love Hairspray. Um, but its transgressiveness is there. It's just it's hidden under the surface of a great message. 
But something like Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble, Desperate Living, you know, those movies just blew my mind wide open. And so Female Trouble specifically, I've said in the past, is my favorite John Waters film. Now, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite is. If you'd like to, if you'd like to volunteer, you're welcome to. But I hate that question because I get, you know, asked what's my favorite horror movie and stuff like that. And I don't like it. But I will say that Female Trouble is my favorite uh, John Waters film. And I think it's because it's the most well realized of the sort of early divine persona movies where if you look at multiple maniacs and even Mondo Trasho, but especially multiple maniacs, I think there's a real trilogy, Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. Those three movies essentially have the essence of the divine character, what we think of as the divine character who went on to have the disco career divine, you know? Um, and, and she, you know, whether it was Babs Johnson or Don Davenport or the lady divine, you know, they were outrageous. And I think with female trouble, you get, it's almost like you couldn't top it. So that's sort of the finale of the trilogy. And then from there you see divine shift into being more of an actor, not that she wasn't an actor, but you know, breaking away from that divine character. So of those movies, and this is not me asking what's your favorite movie, what's your favorite Divine? I think it is going to be Don Davenport because that one we get all the Divines, everything that he learned for the previous two movies, everything he's built on on the previous two movies. I agree with you completely. There are a perfect trilogy of like the origins right the way through to the death at the end. Because Divine learned the success from Pink Flamingos. He saw that he could do it. He saw that they had done it right. He knew that he could play it. He could do it. So they were completely off the leash for Female Trouble. They had all the confidence that they needed behind the camera, in front of the camera. They could just make the perfect movie without any of the worries or anything because they'd proven it. Like Pink Flamingos, that was it. They underlined it. They could do it. So after that, Female Trouble was where they could have fun and they could do it. So Divine will run the gamut. Schoolgirl, all the way through to the execution, which to me, I'm a, I'm a Don apologist. I think Don is right. And I think Don agrees her execution is just and is a part of it. And it's a great award for the end of a great criminal life. It's <laughs> just um, all of it. So by that point, I think Divine had... Uh, started and that, that was the big finish and i think that's why when he picked back up again it was a complete clean slate fresh start brand new divine brand new slate he had proven it female trouble was the end of that and it should have been because that cannot be talked and i like this discussion of the trajectory of it being a trilogy but also the growth of divine as a character and the way divine presents herself because when you think about pink flamingos in uh, comparison to Female Trouble, Pink Flamingos is sort of the micro story, right? It's it's Babs versus the Marbles, and it's this kind of bubble of a world. But then we see in Female Trouble the idea that Dawn wants to take her otherness and make it celebrity. The idea of the thing that Divine really at that time couldn't be encapsulated in this criminal version of it in the film, if that makes sense. Is that, do you think some of the appeal is, is we as queer people are watching her get to break the rules in ways that we knew we couldn't? I think Pink Flamingos presented us with uh, beauty that was never acknowledged in the movie and it, it, it showed us crime and female trouble put them together and showed us what we wanted, which is them acknowledging that she was beautiful. 
that these extreme acts and these criminal endeavors were beautiful. They were they were exciting to watch. They they took all of that that accidentally might have happened with pink flamingos, like lightning in a bottle. But he was able to learn from all of that, see the reactions and see it all, and then present it all so much broader with a big bare canvas. You know, I'm glad that you bring up the beauty because I think one one of the other things that for me embodies so much of what I love about female trouble is we are talking about a collaborative, of course. And our other guest uh, on today's episode is very eloquent about saying that the vision for all of this came from one place. And that is from the mind of Mr. John Waters. We know that. But John like any filmmaker, had to rely on other creative, talented geniuses who also were working way outside of Hollywood. And I feel like with Female Trouble, and you look at those sets that Vince Peronio did, and especially you look at Divine's look, her makeup, her hair, her costumes done by the genius Van Smith. And again, you've got the, 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 the finale of this trilogy. You see where Van and Vince were coming from in the other two movies. And then with Female Trouble, they just exploded. And so with that, what is your favorite Don Davenport look? Because, you know, there are so many. Um, and you've obviously drawn so many of them. Oh, that's such a hard one because they're all so good. I think my favorite of them all would be, and it's the most dumbest probably one of them all, but it's I love her schoolgirl look. It's the, and it's because it's the one that I have seen most in real life. I think it's because I have seen those girls in real life. I've never seen any of the other dons. I wish I could see the glamour <laughs> of the other dons. I never do. But those dons, I can see and recognize those bad girls. They, they may not be dressed in the exact outfit of Don, but you know the ones, those are the girls in class who are the bad girls. They're the sluts. Yes. They're the ones who are on a, on a track of their own. And I, so I think early Don, young Don, teen Don, I just, that's why I, I, I draw a lot of the three girls in the bathroom and their conversation in the bathroom because that's the one that is probably the, one of the most relatable scenes in the movie because I've had similar conversations with similar people in similar places. So it just, uh, that one, I think that one just means a little bit more real to me rather than, the fantasy of this crazy Baltimore that happens after the school. The school's the like the real part, and then as soon as she runs away, the Baltimore of it starts. Yes, there's nothing quite like seeing her in that schoolgirl outfit eating a meatball sandwich. The meatball sandwich is one of my favorite gags of the whole movie because what David's saying, the idea that when Divine goes out into the world, the crimes get bigger, they get more fantastical, it matches the level of Divine. But there's something about even the affront of her just doing what she wants to do in class and people being bothered by it. Like eating a sandwich is the biggest infraction of the scene. And yet it's a scene stealing moment and it just shows the trajectory that she's on, but it's also relatable in a way that I think later we can only fantasize or maybe not fantasize. Now we're spending a lot of time talking about Divine. And of course, what, what Peach has mentioned is these movies are made by a great group of collaborators. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other Dreamlanders in this movie. Do you have a personal favorite non-Divine performance in Female Trouble or a few? Minks though, look, without a doubt, just hands down. Um, this where she is this, 
Tasmanian devil in a baby doll dress bursting into the scene, completely stealing the scene from Divine right under his feet every single time. I can completely see why Taffy is used sparingly. And when when she does, she makes an impression because you're you're supposed to sympathize with Taffy as this abused and neglected child. But you can't, I can't, I just side with Dawn every time. It's like she comes in here and she does this to you. Get her. <laughs> I just and I love her for it. I love the challenge of it. I love how dare she come in this affront to Don Davenport, embarrass her in front of her stepfather or her guests, whatever it is. How dare she? And the balls of taffy. That's that's <laughs> I have to give it to Mink Stowe for it. As you know, I, I of course love Mink. And I think Mink and Divine as a duo, as a screen duo, do not mm-hmm. get enough credit. Because if you watch Connie Marble and Babs Johnson, you realize that Mink is holding her own as Connie Marble. And that next to a personification like Divine, that level of persona, mm-hmm. you know, played by Glenn. Not easy. And I know, you know, a lot of cis women, AFAB queens who perform on stage with drag queens. And physically, it's just different. You know, there's a physical difference. There's a sensationalist difference, right? And Mink is Connie Marble is so great. And then with Taffy, it's just like, oh, you're going to victimize me? You're going to beat me with a car aerial? Well, I'm still going to be in your face and I'm still going to throw that fucking spaghetti against the wall. And, you know, she doesn't, she's not a victim. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, she dares her every scene. She almost wants to, she just wants to see how far she can push this woman right (laughs) up till the end, right up till she gets the answer. Yeah. Right up until everyone else is like, yes, this is justified. Strangler. Yes. She does it right to the point and she tests her every step of the way and doesn't give her an easy ride. And I like that because that pushes Dawn to extremes. And the more extreme Dawn gets, the more I love her. Well, and even Taffy's conversion to a Hare Krishna is to push Dawn's buttons. I mean, like, you know that she mm-hmm. is supposed to believe it, but it's it's just the rallying against Dawn. Yeah. Oh, she doesn't Doing believe it. it at all. No. <laughs> Showing up at the premiere in front yeah. of her fans and her closest friends and the full garb. No, she knew what she was doing. Yeah. She knew what button she was pressing and she didn't know one of those buttons was the trigger. That was it. That was it for uh, Miss Tap. And the trigger was uh, Krishna is love, mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Consciousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I want to swing back for a minute because I think, Michael, you asked the next obvious question, which is, you know, with these Dreamlanders. And I think we can all agree as super fans by choosing Mink as our favorite and Taffy, that is kind of the next obvious answer. But of but, course, uh, uh, of course, Cookie and Sue as Chicklet and Concetta are incredible. Of course, David Lockery and Mary Vivian Pierce as the Dashers are amazing. But there's also these other folks that show up in the mm-hmm. movie. And, and I love these characters in a John Waters film. And so I'm thinking outside of what we would think of as the A-listers, like Edith Massey and Mink and, and David. But the student who stands up and says, Mr. Weinberger, mm-hmm. you know, um, that moment, right? Or young Taffy or Paul Swift is Butterfly. You know, 
What about these characters who have very little screen time and make a huge impression? Can you talk about some of your favorites? Because I know for us obsessed fans, those are like Easter eggs and your art really, more than almost any artist, I feel like you really hone into a super fan's need for something deeper? Well, I would say the female trouble, I think my answer would always be Jean Hell. Yes. Yes. Because the end of female trouble, end of the trilogy, the expert living is where chaos reigned. Every character was the main character. Every character was the crazy character. Every character was the one you want to know everything about. You got some flashbacks, but you're like, I want to know you. That was like the explosion firework at the end, the celebration. But she came into that and not only held her own, solidified her place. Just came in there absolutely natural. She knew the game. She knew the gig. She just done it absolutely perfect. And then when she appeared again in polyester, so committed that she broke that tooth. Like just so good. So good from just from Desperate Living. I fell in love with her. Any cameo after that was just like a treat. But for female trouble, I think, and I think I've only actually drawn her once, would have been um, Hillary's Little Taffy. Uh How she walks on that set, walking up to this Godzilla Elizabeth Taylor and gives her shit to her face and doesn't even flinch when her friends come in and just talk shit to them too without flinching. And I know it's because the actress was friends with them off camera. She knew them and was familiar. So she had that advantage that other child actors might not have. So that she was able to play it that way. There was no stage schooliness. There was no nerves. She knew that she was the one in charge of that scene. And uh, and she played it and she'd done it. And I think that's just the most perfect compliment for Mink's taffy. It worked. The continuity absolutely worked. And I don't know if that was Mink picking up what Hillary had done or had seen it or just know her from being on set and being at the the store. She just is fantastic. I I wish she came back. I love the selection of Hillary's little taffy because I think in, in these characters that we don't automatically think of when we think of the Dreamlanders that Peaches is referring to is throughout female trouble we are introduced to a lot of characters who have to sort of meet dawn's delinquency as it hits them and those end up lending themselves to some of the more special moments of the film even though we don't always talk about the characters i mean the most cited sequence of this film is the cha-cha heels and it wouldn't work half as well if we didn't have the mother with the you know on christmas dawn on christmas you know and I think that those are very special moments. You know, even even Gator in how he matches Divine's energy or lack, you know, lack thereof at certain points. The parents, they sell it right. They are so annoying. They are so obnoxious. They are so white bread infuriating that they make you hate them in the tiny little scene that they get. They don't, like, I know there's a deleted scene, but this tiny scene... They make you hate them so much that you are on board with Dawn throwing her under the tree and running out of the house. You're on board. <laughs> they make it, it work, it, a tiny bit. 
Yeah, that's probably, I'm glad you brought up the cha-cha heels because as a fanatic, that's probably the most popular scene that, mm-hmm. that people really identify with. And and I think it, it's in conjunction with not only wanting the cha-cha heels, but then then not getting them. And then, you know, of course, throwing your mother under the tree and, and the mother, you know, rolling around saying not on Christmas, not on Christmas, you know, it's just perfection and um mm-hmm. yeah I, one thing about gator this is just a little tidbit and i don't know if john talks about this that much but i remember once being with john and it was for a screening of female trouble and john asked me if i was attracted to gator and i was kind of like i guess i mean but he's not you know what i mean like i i hadn't really ever thought of it and sure. then john was like oh i am I was like, oh, is that is that mm-hmm. your is that your type? And it made so much sense. Like Gator was like, it's just kind of fun knowing that like Gator was like to John, like a sex symbol, you know. Oh yeah, that makes absolute sense. Look at crackers. Look at yes. Gator. Look at the Manson boys back yes. in the day. The long haired, <laughs> dirty hippies, the greasy yeah. boys. And John looks like that. See- he did. He looked, yeah. he had the stringy hair, he yeah. had the clothes. He looked the part too, but he took it up as he should do, up a notch. He had the mustache. Yes. And the and the, the cigarette permanently dripping from the lip. He looked the part too. But yeah, I can completely see that being John. I can't imagine John going for any kind of even remotely looking queer person. No. They have to look so straight that straight people would reject them and like criminals you know they look like they look like people who would deal drugs and you know people and- with an interesting backstory <laughs> people who <laughs> people who do look like they've lived a life or have have um have opinions that you may never have heard before because that's what you rely on john waters for and i think yes. that's what he must seek out because he always seems to have fresh ideas he must find them from somewhere well, and it does explain why Gator is the most naked person in the whole movie. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lots of close-ups, too. Um, yes, that was um, fine for me as a teenager watching that and and, uh, and seeing. I didn't think Gator was uh, ugly. I did prefer him clothes just because he was dressed always so good. Yeah. Those blazers, the jackets that he wore, the maroon and the animal prints. He was always very stylish. I think that was Ada's influence, not so much him, but... I have my own like inner story for a lot of female trouble, and that's a part of it. Yes, Gator's style is not his own. I don't know about YouTube, but I always glom onto certain line deliveries for things that otherwise aren't all that interesting. And when Gator says "auto industry," the way he mm-hmm, he delivers yeah. line every time he says it, it just like it cracks me up. I, I I know that had to have been a deliberate line reading given to him by it, John. It, it was not. It's it not. was not. No, it's in the commentary of them. John says that that's the way he said it when they were doing the rehearsals and he liked it. He kept in and never corrected him and and let him pronounce it his own way as he would. And there's apparently a very, very particular Baltimore regional accent. I think it must have been. Oh, that just oh, makes yes. me love him more. Sure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that he was determined. As someone from Maryland, I think a lot of people don't realize how much authenticity, like those people aren't putting on accents, right? And the exception to that is John, 
doing the narration for Pink Flamingos. So the, the opening of Pink Flamingos, where there's a narrator, that's actually John doing a Baltimore accent. But John does have a Baltimore accent. Like if mm-hmm. you if you listen to John, he does. Most of us who, who've grown up in Maryland have some sort of little bit of an accent. But I'm glad that, uh, Michael, you brought this up because this is, like many of John's films, probably one, if not the most quotable movie as far as just the dialogue being just one stroke of genius script writing after another you know just hilarious genius lines of dialogue so i'd love to do a round robin with us all giving our favorite lines from the movie or even if it's not our favorite just a line that you love so that we don't all maybe say the same thing and the other is because you know david obviously has a pretty fabulous accent i would love to hear Michael, you're from Pittsburgh, so you should be able to do this. I would like love to hear you both do your Baltimore accents. Oh no. See, this is the challenge. I'm 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 getting you to perform while also answering a question. Well, this is all you, David. <laughs> oh I, uh, I can't do an American accent in general, but uh, and then so in place of telling you or doing an accent, anytime I do an American accent to anybody, no matter how drunk I am, my husband will always turn to the person saying, That's him doing Baltimore. He only knows Baltimore accents. And I really don't. I really don't. But he knows that everything I basically think will come through a Dreamland filter. And somehow it will come out through that. I don't have a line that I can say with a Baltimore accent. I honestly couldn't do it. But there is so many lines from this that I say all of the time, which is always like a a small portion to be plate. And I say that... (laughs) Every day, no matter what anybody offers me, and nobody has a clue where it comes from, I even forget that I'm quoting. It just comes so natural. I am sure you would. Of all people, I'm sure you would. There is just so many little lines from this that I, I don't quote as movie quotes that have just became a part of my vocabulary all the time. Uh, I want me to tell you that I don't want your goddamn eggs, whatever it is. I get those constantly. Maybe mine's are all food related. It's always, I don't want no goddamn eggs. I want meat and potatoes. And I've, I made a shirt of it. I just, I guess it's all food. Those ones just become a part of my language. And then my husband adopts them, which I love because sometimes he isn't even aware of what he's saying. And that just tickles me. That's just, there's just too many quotable lines in that movie. It's, it's perfection. So it's I'm perfection. sorry, I can't do a Baltimore accent for you. If I meet you in person and I have enough drinks, I'll consider it. <laughs> but you just tell me to do any American accent and it will come out as Edith as, Massey, as you would like. Okay, okay, fair enough. Michael, it's so funny. Like my favorite line I referenced earlier, I love the the meatball subline. I, I, it always uh, cracks me up, mm-hmm. no matter how many times. But then the second you uh, put it to me to do a Baltimore accent, but you mentioned Pittsburgh, I suddenly just started thinking about because when we've talked about Romero on the podcast before, if you know how Pittsburgh people speak, everyone in those movies sounds. It's just like what you're saying. You can hear Baltimore when you watch a John movie. I can hear. Pittsburgh when I hear when I watch Romero movie and when you said that I can only hear it now in a Pittsburgh accent it's like the Dawn Davenport like just that kind of <laughs> <laughs> I hear yeah Yins she's eating it in the middle of class Pittsburgh is very different you know what's yeah. the same as Philadelphia yeah that's true I guess some of us would know the difference but it's very very similar well the reality is that people also have their own like slightly regional dialects the way that Mary Vivian yes. Pierce's Baltimore accent comes out is very different than say 
David Lockery or John himself. And it's the same with Pittsburgh. Like you have those slight variations. Tom Savini does not sound like Bill Cardill, you know. I was at the UPS store of all places and I walked in and I was, you know, dressed um, not in drag. And the UPS person was like, peaches. And this woman turned around and looked at me and I knew I kind of recognized her, but she had big sunglasses on and her, her hair was kind of blonde. And she was like, hey, hon, I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> you know, how have you been? So I'm like, okay, this is obviously someone I know from Maryland. And I'm like looking at her confused. And she's like, you know, hun, it's me, Gina. And it's Gina Shock of the Go-Go's. <laughs> so I, you know, haven't seen Gina in a while, certainly not since before the pandemic. And I always forget that Gina is from Maryland. She grew up outside uh, outside of Baltimore. And she's like, you know, have you seen John lately? Um, You know, blah, blah, blah. Total Baltimore accent. I was like, girl, I never noticed like how crazy your accent is. And she looked at me and she's like, what? Like what accent? As someone from Maryland, I'm like, your accent is crazier than John's or Mink's. I mean, Mink barely even has one anymore. You know, no, it's, it's true. like, what is this? She just is one of those Marylanders who grew up, you know, even though she hasn't lived in Maryland, I mean, the Go-Go's, my God, they moved to LA in the fucking, you know, late seventies or whatever, you know? So it's like, she just has hung on to that Maryland accent, but I love knowing that. I mean, seek out an interview with Gina Shock, but I did think that was fun. The, the Maryland accent for the Gina Shock and Go-Go's fans. Um, my favorite line in Female Trouble is probably one of the most obvious ones you could choose, but I also think it's one that, you know, deserves all the credit in the world, which is a taffy line. And it's, I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. <laughs> because I think it best embodies the bizarre poetry of John Waters' dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like no one talks like that, but you wish they did. I wish we lived in a world where people could read each other with that sort of, you know, metaphorical genius. So, you know, that's my favorite line. I can see why. <laughs> Excellent. She delivers it so well. One question I like to ask every guest who has grown and, and attached themselves to these cult films, but especially with regard to John Waters and the Dreamlanders and Female Trouble, you've done hundreds, if not thousands, of art pieces dedicated to this world. So from your first discovery of John Waters to now, how has your relationship changed with his work, if at all? It's not. I can dissect the movie and I can go through still by still and I can read about the makings of and I can do all of that. But when I'm watching the movie, no matter how much I might have learned, I forget all of it. I can start watching it like I've done it before this podcast. I, I tried to watch the movie and I was going to try and make notes of lines that I liked or costumes or whatever. I forgot all about that. I just watched the movie I have it every <laughs> time. So it stays the same because I, I, I never get a chance to um, dissect it or see how the sausage is made. I just enjoy it for what it is and how it was made every time. I love that. Yeah. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. And also, you made me a brilliant piece of artwork when we did the Rocky Horror tribute celebration that I love so much. And you've been such a supporter of mine. And of course, we mm -hmm. share um, a fandom of John's and you've sent me so many beautiful gifts over the years, just been so generous. And now you're coming on our podcast. And as someone who's really kind of known you through your artwork and your, your generosity, it's just been so lovely to actually get to sit and for the first time have a proper conversation and I look forward to more. Yes, I hopefully there will be more. Yes. If you ever need someone to come on and 
Defend dirty shame. You come with me, and I'll uh, I'll come swinging. David, I love a dirty shame. Same. Mm-hmm. I really feel like you know, as far as it being the last feature, it also is a bit underrated. Like people need to Absolutely. revisit that. Absolutely, completely. Yeah. I think too many people come with it with the baggage of previous movies, and they don't give the yeah. movie its fair chance. You take it on its own. It's great, and a lot of the problem people have with it, I think, is ageism. They don't want to be thinking of these middle-aged suburban people having a sex life and I'm afraid that they do so yes that's the problem is try to get a young audience to watch a movie about middle-aged people having fetishes yes you know that's such a good point it, it's like most of his films it's another one that was very ahead of its time and I think in many ways the world wasn't ready for it. And no, there, if it was all 20 year olds. I mean, Mink Stoll. I mean, how great is Mink Stoll? And, you know, you know, it was so great to see her in a bigger role, you know, in a more recent movie. So her Marge the Neuter. Mm-hmm. What's the actor's name? The woman that runs the convenience store? Susan Shepard. With her, like, amazing smoky voice. Yes. Yeah, oh, everyone yeah. in the neighborhood. Her and Mink together are just magic, you know. Yeah, the old people who are the old John Waters movies in this little suburban yeah. town, they still have that old way of speaking about them. I have a, a lot of love for a lot of those movies, and yeah. um, I'll be happy to talk about them at any time. But before I go, please, I wanted to just plug one thing, and he is the heart of John Waters' fandom online, and that is Scott at John Waters' Divine Trash on Instagram. He's the one who reminds me, it's David Lockery's birthday today. This is the anniversary of Pink Flamingos. He is on top of his shit and he knows everything. He is my go-to John Waters fan on Instagram and I would encourage everybody to follow John Waters Divine Trash dedication. That's a great point because uh, Michael and I know that we have many of these films to dive into and we we Mm -hmm. personally chose to do the films individually rather than to do the John Waters idol worship episode, you know, so that we could dive into Desperate Living was the first that we did. And now we're Mm -hmm. doing Female Trouble. But why don't we have him on a future episode, you know, when we do one of those shows? Because, you know, we have many, many, many more to do. Absolutely. He'd love it. Let's remind folks where they can find you. Find me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at uh, Mr. B Nation, M-I-S-T-E-R, B Nation. And then you'll find me there posting um, tacky, trashy art, usually (laughs) 90% in honor of John Waters and his movies because I can't find it anywhere else, so I just have to do it myself. Some of our favorite art on the internet, though. And I have to tell you that uh, I have a multiple Maniac sweatshirt with your art on it. And it's one of my favorite things to wear and one of my favorite things to wear out because people always comment on that delicious lobster. I just love lobster. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, David. Thank you. That was our interview with the fabulous Mr. B Nation. And as you can tell, that person shares our passion for John Waters and all things Dreamlanders. And what a wonderful guest. And if you haven't checked out Mr. B Nation's artwork, I mean, oh my God. I just saw a new piece the other day, Michael, that I shared where it's divine from Pink Flamingos with her son. She's between her son's legs And he's saying, suck my balls, mama, or get my balls. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, (laughs) 
a little bit, a little moment like that. But you got to see the way that he designed it. It's all glittery and beautiful and amazing, almost like a religious experience. And um, it just love is so stuff. good. It's so me good. too. And, you know, tying things back around to the start of this new season, I don't know if you saw, but Mr. B Nation did a Halloween 3 inspired artwork after our episode. Uh, I did see that. And I shared that as well. It was fabulous. It was so good. uh, If you're listening, well, I'm hoping you're listening, Mr. B Nation. We love all your artwork and we hope you continue to just keep up the great work. Um, This is one of those episodes where it's like you and I know that if we wouldn't just kill ourselves from dehydration and malnourishment, we could literally talk about female trouble for seven days straight without a break. That's how much we love it. There are so many things left to discuss that you're right. We could go. I mean, because we talk about all the quotable lines, but what about the theme song? It's amazing. It's legendary. The supporting cast of people that we didn't even get a chance to talk about because everyone in this movie is a character. Speaking of which, you know, one of the real thrills of my life is that I do this cabaret show with Mink Stoll. And one of my favorite parts of that show is that she and I get to do a live duet to female trouble. Yes. And it's like, you know, just a throw. And guess what? Next week, she and I are going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places, and we'll be singing female trouble. <laughs> In Oklahoma. Well, who would have thought it? We're going to Tulsa to, to present all about evil. Also, Honey Mahogany is going to be joining me there to, to do a, a, a history of San Francisco drag, which is inspired by your and I's you know, project. So yes, it's surreal. These things as a kid who grew up obsessed with them, it is never anything but exciting to be in the presence of John Waters or Mink Stoll. I never, I never get used to it. Nor should you, because that's what makes a midnight mass special. (laughs) (laughs) True. And if you two are sitting out there, And you've got lots of problems, you know, female problems. You know, maybe you're twisted. You are probably one of the children of the popcorn, too. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>